Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. everybody. Hi, Hi Dr. Dr. Nick. Yes, hello everybody. It's Dr. Nick here again. And welcome to Radiotherapy. Oh, this first Sunday of winter, what better way to continue our Sunday than to keep us company here on Radiotherapy. Today, Miss Diagnosis will not be with us because she is away on her honeymoon. Studio applause, please. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I'm delighted to be joined once more here in the studio by a hard-working regular panellist, Dr. Sonia Prudence. Dear Prudence, um, you've got a special guest for us today. Tell us all. Oh, well, do you think about your emotions much, Dr. Nick? Uh, I'm a bloke. Uh, yeah, yes, I do, but you actually. do a bit every now and again. Yeah, well, OK, well, we're going to talk about emotions. We've got a, an, a psychologist, an expert joining us today, and we're going to explore... Emotions and emotion-focused therapy. And the psychologist and expert we have, who used to actually appear on the show. Well, yes, yes. Um, uh, quite an eminent uh, broadcaster in their own right and, uh, and a former Triple um, R um, presenter and so on. Yeah, Dr Lou Cooper, that's who we'll be meeting. Well, that's very exciting. So looking forward very much to having Lou Cooper in the first part of the show. Um, second part of the show, we'll be talking to Dr. Andrew, let's try and get his name right, Butchens uh, from the Doherty Institute about Baruli. Now, Dr. So- Sonia, good morning to you. Have you ever seen a case of Baruli? Good morning, Dr. Nick. I have never seen a case of Baruli, but we were talking... We were talking earlier <laughs> um, that they seem to be possum-related, so I'm looking forward to asking Andrew all about the Baruli ulcer. I haven't seen any, but I'm very interested. Yes, Baruli ulcer. It's one of those sort of weird ones. And uh, um, now, one of my favourite parts of the show. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Yes, it's the Radiotherapy Dog Park shout out. <laughs> now, today, um, Prudence, dear, you haven't been in the park much, have you? Why is that? Uh, it's just been too cold, I think, actually, and too dark in the mornings, and I just haven't got that far well, the, well, that, that often. Well, that's no good. Well, fortunately, I have yeah. been in the dog park, and um, I've met a few times the absolutely lovely Christine. Um, now, you would be interested in this, Prudence, because Christine would... is a psychotherapist herself. Oh, wonderful. Um, she has a Beautiful little cavoodle called Max. Um, oh, yes, Max. Lovely dog. Um, and Max comes to work with her sometimes. And she's, uh, she's not actually, a, Max isn't actually a formally trained therapy dog. But no. um, can you tell the listeners a little bit about what the role of animals might be in um, psychotherapy? Well, Oh, absolutely. Look, I mean, actually, I've got, a, I've got a cavoodle and I've taken her into the therapy room as well. And sometimes she'll just sort of sit there, actually, sit on the couch next to the, next to the client and the client can just stroke them. I think um, therapy dogs um, can do a number of things. Yes, they can provide us just a safer, comforting environment for the client so they find them a bit relaxing. You know, stroking a dog, just having a little bit of gentle attention um, kind of alleviates anxiety in the moment. Um, some dogs as well, I mean, they 
are kind of they're, they're trained specifically for therapy work. They're very sensitive, I think, to to people's emotions. We can probably ask Dr. Lou about this as well. She's a dog owner too. Right. Um, yeah, but I think they tune in to to your emotions and perhaps again can help you just feel a bit more calm um, at times. Which you know, therapy shouldn't be a stressful sort of uh, experience, but. Animals, we know as well that actually mm. horses are very good at that too. They're great therapists. And we, under, and we understand how dogs work because their sense of smell is so incredible. So oh, that we, now have, we now have therapy dogs for people with diabetes who can sense yeah. the smell of a hypoglycemic, a low sugar mm. episode long before the person actually knows yeah. it's happening, which is pretty absolutely incredible. Oh, dogs, you've got to love them, haven't they? All we right, do. well, perhaps now it's time for some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Dr. Sondi, you've got a little bit of newsy stuff for us, haven't you? Yeah, I do. I wanted to ask you, Dr. Nick, do you know what asynchronous text-based consults are, also known as the tick and flick? Uh, absolutely not. No. <laughs> <laughs> no idea at all, so over to you. Yeah, so what I wanted to talk about was some new advice by the medical board about these asynchronous, so not conducted at the same time in real time, consults with a doctor. So there's been a lot of companies that have popped up. I get them all the time on my Instagram advertisements where you can fill out a form or speak to a chatbot or an AI sort of software um, and get your script sent to you on your phone by a doctor. So it could be for your contraceptive pill, for uh, medical marijuana maybe, or even your medical certificate. And the medical board has put out some regulations that really say that this is a consumer-forward corporate-based model that doesn't really work so well in healthcare. So they called it a what? Sorry, <laughs> Cons- what? Well, it's 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 sort of I guess saying that better access, easier access, getting a medical certificate from your bed without actually seeing a doctor is possibly not the best healthcare that we can provide our patients. So as of September, if doctors are going to do the asynchronous text-based model or the tick and flick, as some people call it, we're going to have to justify exactly why it was needed. So I'd be interested if any listeners have used these text-based consults with doctors and, and what their experiences were, but they won't be around for much longer. So, devil's advocate, um, we're all about convenience these days. We do our own checkouts, we do everything online. Why shouldn't people who are comfortable with their medication, who just need a certificate for work, not just get one quickly online without having to go and sit in some virus-filled waiting room for three quarters of <laughs> an hour because the doctor's running late? Yes, we do, we do have trouble keeping to time. I'm always apologising about that. But it's really important for doctors to be able to see your full medical history. And I like to think personally that a script is never really just a script. It's always an opportunity to catch up with my patients, see how everything is going. And often there are little bits and bobs in their medical history that mean their medication might need some reviewing. But but I'd love to hear other people's experiences if they have um, engaged with these these consults before. Well, we mentioned the text line before, 0466981027. Do let us know. Prudence, have you ever availed no, yourself to such that. a service? I mean, it does sound quite attractive, doesn't it? Just to be able to go, look, I need a repeat script. You know, I've been having it for years. Well, it'd be a lot easier just to do that than to have to do a five-minute bulk build consult with my, you know, a telehealth sort of thing. I mean, but I can also see, I think, the other side, which is, well, how do we actually know who we're talking to, both from the patient's perspective and also from the the clinician's perspective. I mean, there's 
you've got very little information from a text um, as to actually who that person is. Now, whether that means that somebody could be accessing, um, you know, more potent uh, analgesics or something and getting them sent to their home, you know, uh, maybe that's uh, maybe there's opportunities for abuse, but I don't know that that means we should have to have too much control. I would have thought in this day and age, uh, when it's fairly easy for most people to book a quick uh, telephone call with their regular doctor, why not do it with a doctor who knows you and knows something about you and have a chat with someone at your real-life person who you know? Anyway, that would be my view. I've got one quick one for you, Dr. Sonia, and you, Prudence, you might be interested in this one. I have been using artificial intelligence in my oh, workplace. Yes. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Isn't that fun? Well, the version I'm using is a program that writes my medical notes for me. So with the patient's permission, I have a microphone set up and listens to the entire discussion. And then at the end of it, when I hit the button, it filters out what it believes is the medical information I need and puts it in the kind of format that doctors like to record their notes. So presentation, assessment plan, and that sort of thing. It's incredible. Yeah, and the thing is, it actually works. Does it really? That's amazing. Well, it works until it, what? It doesn't work. I mean, I was reading this morning about a, um, a lawyer, I think, in the US who was involved in a case and actually used one of these AI programs to go and do his, um, you know, to find out the precedents for cases um, that he was arguing and to find the precedents and to give him, like, to check those precedents. And he presented that all and the judge kind of looked at it and went like, these have never happened. So the AI bot thing just gave him completely fabricated information. So we have to be careful, don't we? We do have to be careful. I don't want for a moment to think that it's just a a copy and paste and nothing else. So what this does is just do what its best effort is, recording what it thinks it's heard, and it is actually remarkably good. But I just copy, paste into the medical record and then edit it to make sure it is accurate. Mm -hmm. And then the good thing is once I click gone, the record is wiped. Um, It's de-identified before it's even sent to the AI engine, um, so there is no risk to the patients of being found out or anything like that, which of course is reasonably what people are scared about. A few people say they don't want to do it, which is absolutely fair, uh, but I've had very, very good uptake of it, and I must say my experience has been extremely strong. We wait to see whether Victoria follows WA's route and then bans all AI use in healthcare. Really? <laughs> wow, very premature. <laughs> yeah, that's what they have. Anyway, anyway, that's enough about me and AI. It's 11 minutes past 10. Uh, we'll be coming back in a minute talking to Dr. Lou Cooper about emotion-focused therapy. Stay here. It's going to be great. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. On the line, we have Dr. Lou Cooper. Welcome back to Radiotherapy, Dr. Lou. It's very nice to hear your voice, Dr. Nick, and hello, Dr. Sonia and Prudence here. And just remind us, what was your name when you were here on Radiotherapy? I was... do I say this? <laughs> yeah, go on. <laughs> go on. You know, when you have when you have a you have a kind of pseudonym and then you blow your pseudonym. Um, <laughs> Rainbow Doc, that was me. Yeah, and it was wonderful when you were with us. We we're very sorry, but you did actually introduce the Prudence, dear. So I'm forever in your debt for that. There's the legacy, <laughs> indeed. Good morning, Doctor Lowe. Good 
morning, Prudence. Yeah. yeah, right. So just to cover a little bit of your background. So, I mean, people may or may not know about you, but um, you're a psychologist. Um, you're a clinical supervisor. You've got a lot of experience, and including in broadcast. And particularly relevant, I guess, to today is that you are the chair and the lead trainer of the Australian Institute of Emotion-Focused Therapy, which um, I guess we'd like to talk to you a bit more about, especially as I think Friday was um, Emotion-Focused uh, Therapy Awareness Day. So coming in a bit um, on, the, on the wake of that. Um, look, I guess just to start, um, Dr. Lou, um, emotions. Emotions, I mean, probably everyone seems to think they know what emotions are, but can we just be a little bit more specific and technical? What, what is an emotion and why are they so important that we incorporate them into therapy at some stage? Well, I was going to say to you, why do we need to have an Emotion Awareness Day? It was Emotion Awareness Day oh, on sorry. Friday. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the reason is, yeah, I mean, I think most people would say, oh, yeah, I'm aware of my emotions. There are some people that say, you know, I don't actually feel much. I don't, I don't feel anything. But most people would say, um, yeah, I know what an emotion is. You know, I feel, <laughs> I feel sad or I feel angry. I get angry. I rage at people. You know, I shout at people sometimes. I wish I didn't. Or I cry. I can't, I can't stop myself crying. Um, they're the kind of experiences that a lot of people will think of as, as feeling emotions. And that is feeling emotions. Yeah. Except it's not pleasant often. You know, we mm. avoid emotions. Which is, and we're taught to avoid emotions often from very on in, early on in our lives, which is why we need an emotion awareness day. Right. And I mean, I think that's, that's interesting. So do we all start off with the same sort of capacity for emotions? I, I'm thinking particularly that stereotypically we think of people who've been, you know, you know, men have perhaps a more restrained or restricted range of emotional experience. Yeah, we start off, you know, when we're born, we have, if you want, the capacity to feel emotion, mm. right? So uh, a baby has the capacity to feel sadness, to feel um, fear, um, to feel joy. Um, but as soon as we're born, the moment that we're born, the context in which we feel emotions, and if you want what I would refer to as an emotion scheme, if you want the structure... Mm around our feeling of emotions starts to develop. So it's, you know, that some people are more sensitive to emotions than other people mm -hmm. uh, in the same way that some people are more sensitive to light or to sound than other people. But essentially, we all are born with the capacity to experience emotions in, and in some way and to respond from the emotional information that is activated by our environment. And those emotions that, like, if we take the example of, a, you know, a young, very young child, a baby, um, it, it's, it's what, what, what is the purpose of those kind of behavioural emotions, those, those feelings that the baby has and that results in some sort of behaviour, like they start crying? They start crying. It's a survival, it's, it's a survival mechanism. Right. So a baby cries so that the baby receives attention and comfort mm -hmm. and whatever it, it may be that they need. So an emotion is an expression of our need. It actually tells us what we need. So a baby crying is crying because they need that comfort. Mm -hmm. They need their caregiver to look after them. 
Okay. So that's, I mean, that's some very basic things. So like they need, they need food, they need their nappy change, they need warmth, or they need some, some actual human contact. As we get older, we kind of, I think, get taught, don't we, to sort of regulate our emotions. We don't seem to have just unfettered emotional experience. Is that sort of right? Yeah, well, our emotions get our emotions get really confused. So, for instance, the the child that cries and doesn't receive comfort, not trying to blame anyone here, but there are many circumstances where a child might cry and and not receive that comfort, or a child might be scared and uh, express that their fear, but is not protected. Then our emotions become really quite tricky because instead of feeling that and expressing that fear mm. or feeling and expressing that sadness, we do something else. Sometimes, you know, we feel you're talking about an adult. Many adults experience shame in response mm. to actually feeling anger or sadness or even shame underneath, you know, which is a primary response to to a situation. Mm-hmm. So we don't always respond in the way that we would naturally respond if we hadn't been socialized in our world, which is not particularly great at acknowledging and encouraging emotional awareness mm-hmm. and expression. And, and with that sort of that complexity around that emotional awareness, then, or perhaps a lack of it, does that lead us uh, as perhaps adults to, to experience emotions, but we don't actually know why? You know, like, why am I so angry today about this? You know, what, what's triggering that? And it's sort of like perhaps we don't, need, we don't seem to be connecting to the, the real need that you described, the survival need even. Yeah, because the anger is in response to another emotion. So I would term that in uh, emotion uh, therapy, for instance, we would call that a secondary reactive emotion. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's secondary to what sits underneath. It's a reaction to feeling uh, sadness, shame, fear, which tend to be the most painful emotions we experience, sadness, shame, and fear. And we don't want to... F- feel those or we haven't been taught how to feel those so instead we experience this emotion which is often anger in response to that emotion and we don't we don't understand we don't understand that until we become aware of a little bit about emotions there may be people listening right now and going oh is that what was going on i don't know why i was so angry in fact i wasn't really you know i was angry but it was something else. So, Dr. Lou, can I ask you a rookie question? Um, someone who's not a, a psychotherapist. Uh, I, would, I would have thought all areas of psychotherapy, psychology, deal with emotions. You surely can't be someone working in that field without emotions being front and centre of what you're doing. What, what does emotion-focused therapy do and encompass that's different from other forms of psychotherapy? Well, I'd I'd just like to go back to that statement that you made that you'd think that, you know, in the area of psychotherapy and psychology that therapists are all working emotions. I would question that because um, certainly in psychology, you're trained very much in a cognitive way. You're trained to, you know, even to, to get into a psychology course, you have to have got so many points (laughs) points <laughs> you have to have you know done well in a in a cognitive way rather than an emotional way no one asks you about your emotional awareness when you um you know get your 
get your letter or your email telling you you've got a place on a psychology course at, at a university, right? So um, psychologists, psychotherapists, like everyone, are you know can be very scared of emotions and not necessarily aware of their underlying emotions. Right. And the, the thing about emotion-focused therapy is we don't manage emotions. You know, an approach such as mindfulness would manage emotions, help to, to sort of regulate them. In emotion-focused therapy, we actually try and activate people's emotions so we can work with them in order to change them. Wow. And uh, yes, look, I totally agree with you because I think that whole cognitive behavioural approach, which sort of actually kind of says that the thoughts precede the emotions sort of thing, is you're, you're coming really from the other way, aren't you? The sort of you're coming from the emotions as being the key. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like an emotion comes before thought rather than thought before emotion. Um, for instance, if, you, if you get, you're walking in the bush, you get bitten by a snake, right? You get bitten by a snake and next time you're walking in the bush, uh, you see a stick on the ground that maybe looks like a snake. You still respond from uh, the emotional driver mm. and jump out of the way, even though... You know, your brain hasn't, your your mind hasn't caught up yeah. uh, with the emotion to say, actually, that's a stick. Yeah, that's right. They kind of feel this short-circuited thinking there. Well, um, I yeah. guess I've heard a few examples, you know, in this whole sort of area, which involve things, you know, like fear and anger and those sorts of, I suppose, negative emotions. What about positive ones? What about love and, you know, compassion and all those sorts of things that we might feel? Is that relevant here as well? Yeah, for sure, because, you know, for every emotion that we struggle with or might not be helpful for us, you know, I'd Mm. call it, it's maladaptive, it's not helpful, there is another emotion that is useful to activate in response to that emotion, which is what would change it. So if you're really angry or really sad, you know, you need to be able to activate your own self-compassion in order to change that experience of sadness, Mm. of shame, or maybe of anger. And so how does that play out in the um, in the in the therapy room? How do you how do you work with someone to sort of activate that sort of self-compassion? Well, the first thing that you have to do is have a really, really strong therapeutic relationship. You have to build a relationship with the client. Because emotions are scary, your client isn't going to go to emotions that up until this point they've done a really good job at keeping at bay. Mm. They're not going to go there unless they feel held and understood by the therapist. So that's the first really important piece. The next piece is that, you know, therapists need to help clients to regulate those emotions so that they're, they're workable because if they're uh, really extreme, the, um, you know, our, our cognitive capacity works really hard to manage the overwhelm of the emotion rather than be able to understand it and, and, and access some sort of meaning around it. So those two things need to be there first and then we encourage clients to move from uh, secondary emotions those reactive ones to the unhelpful the stuck one underneath and by really uh, creating a safe environment for the client to be able to sink and deepen the experience of that emotion they are able to make contact with what it is that they need and that is where the client understands they need self-compassion or they actually need to be 
uh, access some anger. You know, anger is often an emotion that is stuffed underneath and never expressed. And Dr. Lou, can I ask a question going one step earlier? If I'm often when I'm referring my patients to psychology, I I give them a brief overview of what what they can expect. So when I talk about CBT, I tell them that they're going to be working through their thoughts, their behaviours and emotions with their psychologist. They might have some worksheets. How can I explain sort of in in a brief way to my patients? I'm also learning about schema therapy and how to explain that to patients. How will I explain to my patients what they can expect in emotion focused therapy in, in, in a way when I'm referring them? Well, I think the first thing is to differentiate between different, different therapies. So if a client has um, been working with cognitive behavioural therapy, for instance, and they're still looking for something else to explain that in emotion-focused therapy, we work with the emotional experience. And if you want the emotional structure that is developed over their life, that is no longer helpful for them. And that most, most, most clients will say, oh, I'm here because I, I know that there's an emotional piece in this that I don't really get, that I'm not able to, I'm not able to either control or I'm not able to uh, rationalize my way through. I'm not able to do this cognitively. There's something sitting there underneath that is getting in my way. Does that... Yeah, 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 that, that I think that's a good way to explain it. Oh, Dr. Lou, you are fantastic oh, as well. Oh, Prudence got a question because yes, well, no, time is you're galloping doing a great ahead. Podcast, aren't you at the moment? And I think it's you know people want to know a bit more about emotion-focused therapy and how all of that works. Um, what's your podcast called, Lou? The podcast is called um, the, it's the Emotion Focus Podcast. So right. it's emotionfocus.com is the website, and it's really in response to um, many clients who I have heard saying, where can, I, where can I listen? You know, everyone loves podcasts these days. Where can I find out more about this? Um, and there wasn't really an awful lot, so I created a podcast, emotionfocus.com. And it's great. I can, I can tell you it's really good. Oh, Dr. Lou, it's so lovely to hear your voice on Triple R again. Thank you very much for your time. I'm sorry we've had to cut you short. There's so much more we could have talked about, but we'll do that on another occasion. Thank you very much for coming on. It's my pleasure. It was lovely to be back, even for a little moment. <laughs> Come into the studio next time. Thanks, Dr. Lou. That was Dr. Lou Cooper, who's an emotion-focused therapist. Fantastic stuff. Um, oh, wonderful listeners. Um, we've had a couple of texts come through. One person asking us if we do a segment at some point about the difference between ADHD and bipolar disorder. Oh, that's really uh, got interesting. A, I think got a young person going through an assessment at the moment, team trying to work out which it is. They are not mutually exclusive. You can have both, but yeah. it can be very confusing. I think a lot of things are confusing. Neurodivergency is yeah. you know, it's a very important but, area. But yeah. very important because the treatment of the two is completely different. Another text yeah. came through saying, oh, just curious to know how much time does that AI note-keeping software save you? Well, <clears throat> I'm of the non-touch typing era where just one finger I on each hand. I thought that might be the case, <laughs> Dr Nick. <laughs> so I'm guessing for good typists it's not such a big deal. But two things, it enables me to concentrate on the patient, not try and type some badly typed notes during the consults because I don't have to try and remember. And because I'm such a lousy typist, it puts in a lot more detail than I might choose to mm. otherwise. So I love it. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. 
Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. On the line, we've got Dr. Andrew Bultians. Andrew, good morning. Good morning, Nick. Good morning, and thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> you have to help me here. Have I got your name right? How do you actually pronounce that wonderful name of yours? Bulgeons, you did a pretty good job there. I've had a lot of variations over the years, but you've done well. Is that Dutch? That is Dutch, correct. Excellent. So with a, uh, Dr. Andrew Bulgeons on the phone, uh, where are you from, Andrew, and tell us what your background is. So I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Doherty Institute, and I like to think of myself as a computational biologist in that I use the power of computing to understand microbes, and I'm really fascinated by the bacterium that causes Brulee ulcer. Right, and you're going to have to now explain to our listening audience who don't know, which I suspect will be about 99.7% of them, what Brulee ulcer actually is. Absolutely. So it's an infectious disease caused by a bacterium known as Mycobacterium ulcerans, and that basically gets under your skin and it grows very slowly and it causes these terrible flesh-eating ulcers. And an interesting fact about this bacterium is it's actually in the same family that cause diseases like tuberculosis and leprosy. Yeah, so it's a mycobacterium. And uh, um, Dr. Sonia, you'll, you'll remember learning all about mycobacteria in medical school. It's a terrifyingly long time ago from my point of view. Um, but one of the features of mycobacteria, if, if I get this correct, is that they're quite slow growing, they're quite slow to find, and they're quite hard to get rid of. Is that right? That's right. They're, they're, they're quite slow growing indeed. They're characterised by having a very unique cell wall structure and um, you know, they can be found in a variety of environments such as soil, water and, and animals and then, of course give rise to some very nasty diseases like tuberculosis and leprosy. And of course, tuberculosis consumption has been with us, well, since forever. Everyone knows that in the period costume dramas, as soon as the heroine starts coughing and a little bit of blood on the handkerchief, that's the end. She's got consumption tuberculosis. But Beruli, um, this seems to be a, a new thing. What's, what's going on here? How come we've got this new mycobacterium wandering around? That's a, that's a key mystery there. Um, it, it, it probably... It, in Victoria, we've, we've seen an emergence of this disease since the 40s. That was first described out in Gippsland. Um, at least in Victoria, it's been in that sort of part of the world for quite a while. And then it's moved in, in the sort of the 80s into the Western Port Districts and then across into Port Phillip Bay in more recent years. So it's on the move. Um, but we've also... It's not just a situation here in Victoria. There's quite a substantial burden of disease in uh, Northern Hemisphere in areas like West and Central Africa as well. And it's known by different names in all the sort of different places it is. So p listeners may be not so familiar with Baruli, but they may have heard of the Bansdale ulcer, which is what it was first known as when it was found in Gippsland in the 40s, and the Daintree ulcer when it was found up in the Daintree area. Um, I can't remember when that was. Do you remember when they found it in Daintree? Oh, I think it was in the 70s that there were some cases up that way, but not, not nowhere near the sort of disease burden we see in Victoria. Quite a sporadic sort of rare thing up there. So you're going to have to help us out here. This is pretty weird. We've got a bug that turns up some parts of Africa, bits of Victoria, some of the Daintree in the sort of more northern parts of Australia, but not in the in-between bits or over in the west. What is going on? 
Yes, it's very bizarre, isn't it? It's quite a mysterious disease. What we do know is that you essentially need four things to come together at the same place and the same time to see disease in humans. That is, number one, the bacterium. Number two, an animal population to sustain and amplify the bacterium in the environment. Number three, a high density of mosquitoes to transmit it to humans. And number four, of course, those unfortunate humans to get bitten and develop these terrible ulcers. So when you see these four things together, that's where you see disease. So I can't see why um, areas like Sydney won't have transmission of Borreliosa given enough time and opportunity. And um, Andrew, Dr Sonia here. So am I correct in, in understanding that there's an animal host that gets bitten by a mosquito uh, and then the mosquito bites the human and that's how it's transferred? It's a bit like that. It's a strange disease in which we've, we've recovered, we've realised that possums, Australian native possums, play a major role in sustaining the bacteria and, and, and amplifying it in the environment, allowing for its persistence year-round in the environment. And then mosquitoes were found a very very important uh, to transmit that disease, the bacterium from the environment, then to humans. So it's a, very much a one health zoonosis sort of situation. And how, so if, is the spread well understood? You know, when my patients are coming back from endemic areas, do I need to ask them about mosquito bites or contact with possums or cuts on their legs that might be infected? What do I need to ask them about? So I think, yeah, have, have they been, if you could establish if they've been to an endemic area that's risky for transmission of Brulios, that's one of the main risk factors is just simply being in, a, in those areas exposed. Um, Mosquitoes are well well understood to be the means of transmission. So if there's a history of mosquito bites, um, that's another big risk factor as well. Um, direct contact with possums, I don't know if that's that important, but it, it might be a, a rare situation transmission directly from the environment, uh, perhaps cuts during gardening, that sort of thing. Uh, so mosquitoes, probably 99% of the time, but perhaps 1% of the time it's direct contact with contaminated environments. It's, it's interesting how information changes, isn't it, Andrew? Because I remember doing an interview on ABC television with Paul Johnson, who's one of the infectious diseases people I know you work with and who's involved in this way back around about 2000. And back then they thought, no, probably mosquitoes aren't anything to do with it. <laughs> oh, my goodness, how times change. We, we ought to talk about, because um, there may be baffled listeners saying, well, what is this Baruli, this Daintree, this Bansdale ulcer? What actually is it? I know you're not a clinician yourself. Self, but um, I'm sure you're familiar enough to be able to tell the listeners what actually should people be looking for? What happens if you get Baruli? Right, so initially a Baruli ulcer legion will present like a papule or a nodule, essentially like a mosquito bite that hangs around for longer than it should. And that can then develop into a scab, and that scab can break down to form an ulcer. And these ulcers are quite progressive, they'll get bigger and bigger if not treated. And they have this very very unique margin. It's an undermined edge around the margins of the ulcers. And that's because the bacterium that causes this disease releases a toxin that actually breaks down the layer of fat beneath the skin, causing that undermined edge. So you're looking out for something that isn't healing. It's, a, it's kind of like a mosquito bite, forms an ulcer, and these are generally painless during the early stages of infection. 
So that's a, that toxin is the flesh-eating bit of the flesh-eating bug, isn't it? But the, the bit you said that's very important then, it's usually not that painful, which I think is interesting because a lot of ulcers are, of course, very uncomfortable for people. To, uh, prudence, dear. Yeah, I just dying to ask. Well, as someone who gets bitten by mosquitoes a lot, and I did last year in particular, and who lives in Victoria, I guess, first of all, sorry, just to clarify, what's the sort of prevalence of Borrelia ulcer? What, how much are we seeing of this in, 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 in this state? Mm, so, unfortunately, it's on the rise, and we've seen a substantial uptick in the number of cases since, since about 2011. There's been a growing number of cases, and it's pretty routine for us to see over 300 cases in Victoria per year. In fact, last year we saw 340, so it's certainly on the rise. And in Victoria, it's, it's a notifiable disease. So that means that it's um, by law. Uh, treating physicians need to notify the health department once they make a diagnosis. So yeah, it's around about over 300 cases okay. per year. It seems to be on the rise, which is a bit a bit concerning. Sure. I mean, that's a significant number, I think. For me, it doesn't sound like rare at 300 cases a year. And, okay, you said, you know, sort of like, okay, I guess the key sign is, you know, maybe you've got a bite, but it doesn't resolve as quickly as it should, whatever that is exactly. Is there anything you can do, though? Like, if I've got, besides, you know, using um, repellents to avoid getting bitten. Before we even go there, let's because people became, oh, my goodness, I've got this little itchy sore that hasn't been getting better. Andrew, where where are the dangerous areas of Victoria at the moment? Where should people be particularly alert for this possibility? Right. So there are a number of sort of historical areas that are endemic for this disease. Um, probably the, the biggest ones are areas on the Morning Pen- Peninsula, areas like Rye, Sorrento, Blangari, Tugaruk. Um, there's also a, a, a focus of disease on the Ballerine Peninsula, areas like Ocean Grove, Barwon Heads, Point Monster, Queenscliff, that sort of thing. But what's probably most concerning is that in the more recent years, we've seen the emergence of new endemic areas just north of Melbourne around the suburbs of Essendon and Brunswick West, um, and also across the opposite side of the bay at Geelong, around the suburbs of Belmont. We've seen um, instances of local transmission um, accumulating from those places. So it's in, a, it's in a number of places, and they seem to be, unfortunately, growing so it's not good. And I want to come to Prudence's very sensible question in a second, but I really want to give you a chance to talk about what your work actually is because what you've been doing is something fascinating with possums to try and help us track where this disease might turn up next. Tell us about that. Sure. So the system that we've developed, essentially it's something that's conceptually quite simple but also quite sophisticated. So basically what it involves is us wandering around the suburbs of Melbourne collecting possum droppings. Now, I know that doesn't sound very glamorous, but that's what we do as part of this research. In fact, I've had some terrific days out on the Mornington Peninsula over summer, beautiful beach view roads collecting these samples as part of this research. But basically what we do is we go out, we collect these possum droppings very carefully, we record the locations with a GPS unit, and then we use, we take them back to the laboratory, we screen them for the presence of this bacteria, and we use that presence-absence data to inform a statistical model that can provide us with very high-resolution risk maps, and we can use that information to predict where the more risky areas for transmission are in the coming seasons. So essentially it's something quite simple. We're walking the roadsides collecting possum droppings, but we're also using some quite sophisticated microbiology and statistical approaches to build this early warning system. I hope you're washing your hands carefully before you eat your sandwiches. 
Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no, but if you do predict, say, you're wandering around a street and you go, oh, my goodness, there's a lot of mycobacterium ulcerans in this particular possum's poo in wherever that suburb may be, how are you then going to translate that into letting people know that they should be on the lookout? What's the system then for giving that information to health professionals or hospitals or whatever? Sure. So uh, the, this is part of a big consult, research consortium called Beating Brule, and we're, we're um, working very closely with the Department of Health. So they're, they're getting direct access to the information that we get from screening these um, samples for this bacterium. So they can alert, um, they can use that information to then alert uh, locals in those areas of the risk of transmission and that can be very important for early pre- for prevention because that means we know there are some behaviours that are preventative uh, such as avoiding mosquito bites so if we can adjust people's behaviours in those risky areas we can perhaps prevent uh, and on top of that, the um, health department can also alert frontline physicians to be on the lookout for brilliosis for unusual skin conditions in those risky areas. Andrew, I'm really interested in this process. So you're collecting possum poo to help identify risky areas. It kind of reminds me of during the COVID pandemic where they were testing sewerage sites to help uh, figure out where the sort of emerging risky areas are for COVID. Are, are there other sort of processes that use this type of modelling, testing, you know, waste products to, to build a map of risky areas? Um, I don't know. About, I'm not so across. I have, I have seen that research with, with SARS-CoV-2 detection in wastewater. I think that's, that's a very good analogy. We're using, in the sense, we're using wildlife as sentinels, as early warning. If we can detect the bacterium in the possum populations, we can then get ahead of the curve and make a prediction for humans. Uh, I know that wildlife sentinel monitoring for zoonotic diseases has been a thing with uh, West Nile virus. They've been screening wild bird populations to try and get ahead of the curve there. And also with rabies virus, there are a range of domestic animals and wild animals that you can screen to try and um, have an early warning system there for rabies. Now, you mentioned earlier that um, preventing mosquito bites, which is always a good thing anyhow, uh, is one way of, of uh, preventing Beruli. And just a reminder to people, the best way of preventing a mosquito bite, cover up, don't let them get at you in the first place, loose clothing, particularly dusk and dawn, and use an effective mosquito repellent, which includes diethyl toluamide, DEET. Uh, around about 15% is all you need. Uh, so <laughs> that's, that's a very brief mosquito prevention thing. But what else can people do to, I mean, imagine not rubbing a bit of possum poo into your open cuts is probably a good preventative exercise. Yeah, I'd definitely recommend against that for, for a number of reasons beyond the really. Um, <laughs> but anything else people can do? Yes, there are. So um, local landowners um, with properties in these risky areas, they could try and reduce the amount of mosquito breeding sites on their land. So that could involve getting rid of buckets of water in the backyard or or old tyres that may be holding water and providing breeding sites for mosquitoes. So if they can reduce the, the population by getting rid of breeding sites, that can certainly have the effect of disrupting transmission to humans in that area. Now, let's talk about if you do actually have a, a little ulcer or sore that you think, oh, my goodness, that hasn't been getting better and I've been given a course of antibiotics, it's still getting bigger and I'm not quite sure what's going on. What should the person with that uh, do? They should certainly go and see a GP and, and, and say that it's an unhealing ulcer and that they may have been to an endemic area 
they may have had a history of a mosquito bite, um, that's what they should definitely do. And then that GP can, can assess the risk for a brulee ulcer. Um, and if they, if they have suspicion for it being brulee, they can then take a sample, send that off to a diagnostic laboratory where we have a very sensitive and specific PCR-based diagnostic test they can give a very definitive diagnosis for brulee ulcer. I think that's a really good point, Andrew. I went through this um, about six months ago with a patient of mine who um, had a, uh, an ulcer on his leg that wasn't healing and we were treating it the way we normally treat ulcers and it was two or three months in. He said to me, Doc, do you think this could be brulee? And um, I work in St Kilda, hadn't really thought about it, but he had visited the Mornington Peninsula. Uh, I wasn't aware of that, but he was uh, canny enough to know that that was potentially a risk. Um, so we did do the swab. Um, slightly to my disappointment, turned out not to be very. <laughs> but the point was so important. If you've got something like this, uh, doctors often won't think about it. They won't necessarily know where your holiday house is or where your trip uh, to the Bellarine has occurred. So, um, yeah, you do actually need to alert your health practitioner. So really great point. Thank you, Andrew. Um, and then supposing it does turn out to be Baruli, you've got a flesh-eating bug under your skin. How on earth do you treat that? Yes, so the World Health Organization recommended guidelines for the treatment of Brulee ulcer is an eight-week oral antibiotic therapy with, with ampicin and clarithromycin. And the key thing here is early treatment. We've seen that the patients who get on their treatment path early are the ones who have the best outcomes. And that really speaks to the, the innovation, the um, advantage of this early warning system that we've developed. So, um, but if the ulcer is quite substantial and involves a bone or a joint or... Um, there's some cosmetic um, concerns, then surgery may be an option as well. And if you're after more information, you can go to the WHO website to see their guidelines. And we say WHO website. Is there a particular Baruli area in that? Yep. So if you Google WHO Baruli treatment guidelines, that'll you'll go to their, their main website. Excellent. We just had a text come through saying, we live in Moody Ponds, we sweep up the possum poo every morning. Do you think sweeping possum poo is a good thing? Are we aerosolising mycobacterium, which we're then going to get all over us? <laughs> mm, that's, a, that's a good one. Um, it, it, we really think mosquitoes are the main mechanism of, of transmission. So if the mosquitoes, uh, if you're sweeping it up into a drain and the drain's got water and the, and the mosquitoes can go down there and interact with it, then... Mm. I'm not sure what the best approach there is, but mm, sweeping it up and putting it in a bin might be the best way, or in the garden where it's not. Um, I guess clearing in the garden. I guess clearing your driveway of possum poo is never going to be a bad thing, but uh, I think your point is very important. If you want to prevent Baruli, uh, you really need to prevent the mosquitoes getting at you and um, probably attending to those little patches of water where they're breeding all around the house. That's probably as important as getting rid of that possum poo. Um, I'm concerned that we, we've got this bug um, sweeping, well, not sweeping across, not, <laughs> not sweeping across the driveway in Mooney Ponds, but um, we do have it increasing in Victoria. What do you think the future is with Baruli? Is this going to get into New South Wales? Is this going to become something which is a major issue for the whole country? Mm, the future. Um, well, we've seen that it, it's it's the the areas that it, where transmission is occurring. It, it seems to be expanding as the years go by, which is it is concerning. But what I can what I can say is that with this new res, with this new research um, with this early warning system, we've really solidified the role, the very important role that possums play in the transmission path for Brilliosa. And as Professor Tim Sunny recently said, if you can stop the disease in possums, you can stop the disease in humans. So 
along those lines, there are um, collaborators of mine from the Geelong team that have been investigating the possibility of vaccinating wild populations of possums against Borrelia ulcer. So that could be a very um, good technique to bring down the prevalence of this bacterium in the environment, which will, of course, have a disrupting effect on transmission to humans. And this is not without precedence. Possum, wild possums have been vaccinated in New Zealand against um, Mycobacterium bovis in an effort to bring down rates of tuberculosis in domestic livestock. And that's the possum side of things, but the human side, I've got co colleagues of mine at the Dowie Institute who are working very hard to develop a vaccine for humans against Borreliosa. So if that's successful, that could be a very uh, very powerful tool in our, our, our kit against prevention as well. And as always, so much to look forward to in the future. Dr Andrew Bulchins, thank you so much for your time this morning. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That was Dr. Andrew Bulgins from the Doherty Institute talking about uh, Buruli Alsa. Absolutely fascinating stuff. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. A couple of text messages have come through. Um, there was a, 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 a lovely message saying, I've lost it now, where's that gone? Oh, uh, about the emotion-focused therapy, saying thank you so much for that conversation. That was absolutely fascinating. And another message saying um, a good psychotherapist using EMDR will utilise emotions, cognition very effectively and effectively. Uh, that's E and A, effectively, affectively. Prudence, dear. Uh, 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 yeah. uh, EMDR. Yeah, eye movements, whatever it is. Desensitisation, reprogramming. Reprogramming, yes. yeah, that's right, which is a very important and very useful treatment, especially for trauma. Mm -hmm. So um, and and well evidenced base as a as a form of treatment, but yes, I think you know obviously really to have a good relationship and to and to build that with your therapist, there is going to be that element of emotional connection and and empathy actually, which is not something that we particularly pursued with Dr. Lou today. But when we talk about emotions, I think and the way we communicate and how important it is to our survival, the ability to empathise with others is very important, and I guess we tend to. Think Think that therapists are quite good at that. We hope they are, anyway. Yes, and I, I, I think it's probably still true to say that uh, there's very strong evidence that the best outcomes in therapy, no matter what modality is used, whether mm. CBT, MDR, or emotion-based therapy, uh, is based on the relationship. Absolutely, between all them. all the evidence points to that. That the most significant factor is the relationship between the therapist and the client, rather than the modality. You can almost do, you know, I mean. It's, it, it adds, but the proportion of the, the value of the relationship is very high. Well, that's all we have time for today. It's um, just time for me to say thank you very much to our fantastic guests. We had Dr. Lou Cooper uh, talking about emotion-based therapy. We had Dr. Andrew Bulchins from the Doherty Institute talking about Buruli Ulcer. Oh, thank you so much to the multi-talented Dr. Nick team. Prudence, dear Dr. Sonia, I've been Dr. Nick. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can check us out on Facebook. You can listen anytime with Triple R Radio On Demand. You can always download the podcast. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.